1: Hello and welcome to the modern adventurer podcast.
2: Ice blocks kind of slotted into the tops of my wellies. I I felt like I was walking on the sort of stumps of my ankles and, um, I genuinely thought I was going to die for the first time in my life.
1: I'm John Horsfall, an adventure athlete who has pursued numerous expeditions around the world. My hope is that on this podcast, we can look to explore the big topics in the world of travel and adventure. This podcast talks to adventurers and explorers around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years, from Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders from all walks of life. We listen to the crazy stories from their expeditions and tragic losses and sacrifices they have made. My first guest is the perfect example of someone who has completed these sorts of journeys and has some incredible stories to tell. He undertook an incredible 43,000 mile bicycle ride, reaching the furthest capes in each of Europe, Asia, and Africa over four years. He has also walked a thousand miles solo across the Gobi desert from China to Mongolia, as well as competing a world's first triathlon along the perceived Europe-Asia border. He is a British explorer and author, and I am delighted to introduce to the show, Charlie Walker. Hi. I first heard about you probably when you were doing your big cycling trip around the world. Can you tell us a bit about that trip? About how it sort of came about. How did it start? What was the sort of beginnings of it?
2: When I, the first summer after graduating from university, I, I booked a flight into Beijing and a flight out of Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. And a little while, just a you know, two-month trip to go and backpack, essentially, around China and Mongolia. And when I... Uh, had booked the flight, I sort of thought after a little while, maybe it would be more interesting to cycle from one to the other. Um, I'd done a sort of short uh, cycling trip uh, a year before in, in Nepal. And so I thought I'll take my bike, didn't get off to the best start. So this is the summer of 2009, because, let me get this right, about 10 days before flying, I snapped one of my quadriceps, I, I didn't tear it, I clean snapped one of the four in my left leg uh right leg. Like, sorry sorry
1: how <laughs>
2: <laughs> i don't entirely know but there was alcohol involved
1: oh right one um, of those sort of drunken nuns. yeah
2: someone probably knows but i've never quite got to the bottom of it so i you know i kind of got to beijing airport on one crutch and then on my first night in beijing i broke my wrist similar sort of are you quite accident prone i was i'm less so now hopefully A Bit more careful yeah, well it was sensible maybe anyway I, so i Two weeks later, finally sort of cut this cast off my wrist, bandaged my wrist up and started cycling. And it was only two weeks to get from uh, it was roughly a thousand miles, sort of the second half across the Gobi Desert. And it was it was pretty straightforward. In the Gobi, there weren't roads. There were just kind of a bunch of tire tracks and trails, you know, sort of crisscrossing the way through the desert. Uh, and I didn't really enjoy it at all, to be honest. It was hot and it was quite uncomfortable. My leg hurt, my wrist hurt. But during that trip, I sort of saw the, the potential for bicycle travel. You know, I realized how it was incredibly cheap. It could get you really, really far at a surprisingly nice rate. You know, you, without really pushing yourself that hard, you can cover, you know, 60 miles a day, a hundred kilometers and that's, you can do that in a morning. Um, So that gives you the other half of every day in which to check out where you are or enjoy yourself or read or write or whatever it might be. Um, So a few weeks after finishing that, I I ended up driving a a knackered old Mongol rally car back from Mongolia, sort of as a favor to a friend. All the way back to the UK? Yeah, in in two weeks. That was a real rush. That is a rush. Um, But one night in a sort of birch forest in Siberia, camped out with a little fire and some paint stripping Mongolian vodka, um, I got quite drunk and sort of came up with the idea of this grand bicycle journey. And the idea was to cycle from home to home via the furthest point in each of Europe, Asia and Africa. And about a year later, I, I set off. It's really actually as kind of straightforward as that. I didn't do a great deal of planning or preparation. Yeah, you know, the, the amount of time I expected it to take me was four years and the world changes a lot in four years. I mean, as it happened, the, the Arab Spring happened about nine months after I left, which entirely changed the sort of geopolitics of, of you know, where to go? Uh, well, yeah, just the the bit that joins Europe, Asia, and Africa suddenly was just completely changed. So it's probably good I didn't get too bogged down with planning. But yeah, that 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 was really it. You know, the first of July twenty ten, I started cycling and and I was off.
1: And what was the sort of furthest point? Because you left the uk you went through europe you went like your route
2: the the the, the route in short was so the three furthest points uh, the first was nordcap which is the northernmost point of europe up in uh, the norwegian arctic and to get there was quite straightforward just up through western europe through sweden the top of norway and there the next point from there was singapore which was quite taunting sort of you know turning my bike around at the top of europe and thinking right I have got to get to the southernmost point of asia um and that took 11 months that leg. And that was down through Finland, Eastern Europe, uh Turkey, Iran. Um sadly I had to fly over Pakistan. I couldn't get a visa. India, Nepal, Tibet, South West China, and then Southeast Asia. From there up to Mongolia once again, through Central Asia, through the Stans, uh through the Middle East, back through Iran, Afghanistan, actually, briefly in Turkish uh, sorry, Kurdish Iraq, uh Turkey, and then down the east side of Africa to bottom and up the west side and back home four years four yeah four and a half in the end I I stopped for half a year in Beijing one winter to kind of earn a bit of money and um, rest
1: and I suppose with those sort of trips you have your highs and your lows tell us about some of the highs
2: I think the most idyllic part of that whole long journey was uh, when I got back to Mongolia I bought a horse a little Mongol pony for not very much, 120 pounds or something. And it, he was tiny and useless. And I actually went to um, sort of check out some horses and I selected the horse I wanted. And it seemed like a you know, good horse, right sort of age, not too long in the tooth, uh, a gelding. So you know he had his balls cut off, wasn't going to be too feisty. And so I went back to the capital to collect all my stuff, went back to take ownership of this horse and it was just a completely different animal, uh, so I got I got kind of done there. So I didn't really ride a great deal. Um, mostly it was just a pack horse. But I walked for two months, uh, just through the grasslands and the forests at the top of Mongolia, and it was it was just beautiful. You know, the going for a long walk can be quite draining. I, I'd, I'd walked to Mongolia from China because I cycled it, you know, the first time round. This time I hiked it from Beijing up to. And walking with a pack on your back, particularly in the Gobi, was quite hard work, and so it wore me out. Uh, And then just the idea of walking without anything to weigh you down and a horse to carry your stuff and each night just making a fire and um, a dog followed me for the second month. So I had a horse, a dog and me and I'd make a little fire and the wolves would be howling, but I had a fire, so I was safe. Sounds almost idyllic. It was was perfect. Yeah. And, And I could have, you know, it felt like I could have been in any, any century and the people I met, the, you know, the nomadic Mongol people living along the way were living more or less as their ancestors had lived for hundreds of years and were very friendly and welcoming and they're way of life is completely different to ours, but you know, there was plenty of common ground and I just had yeah, a great time seeing the country, getting to know the people that was, yeah, that was definitely a high, I didn't feel any sort of rush. It was just a very nice paced couple of months of walking 600 miles or something. Do you,
1: do you think you've always had these sort of big adventures in you from a young age? I mean, no, in terms I, of
2: your I wasn't, I wasn't uh, an especially sort of outgoing adventurous child I grew up in a village and so I was sort of in, in a small sense outdoorsy you know we I wasn't a city kid by any means no. but yeah, you know we didn't we never went camping my family weren't into outdoor pursuits at all I tried to do Duke of Edinburgh at school and failed the bronze expedition <laughs> when, I was, when I was about 14 that was probably the last night I spent in a tent until I was 19 or 20. So yeah, I, I, there, there was a big sort of hiatus where I just had no interest really, but once, once, you know, once I'd left school and started traveling a bit then you know, the sort of the bug bit,
1: it's quite funny. Cause my sort of trip, like my memory of camping when I was younger was once sort of being down and there was sort of almost like a storm in the night and the metal poles like smashed me in the head. And that's my only memory growing up of like proper camping. And then. Sort of when I got into it, I didn't, I suppose you almost go with a sort of naive expectation. You're just like, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. It'll be great. Which is sort of like how I started as well. It's just this almost naive. Yeah. Let's just see what happens. Take each day as it comes and work from there. Yeah. Was that the sort of mentality you had? Do you think?
2: Pretty much. I mean, there's a lot of hubris in how I sort of got into that big trip on the bicycle, for example, because I just... I was sort of young and, um, wanted to, I, I got, there's, there's definitely some ego in it, which yeah, I think is pretty, it's pretty much gone now. <laughs> um, now I know my own true ineptitude, but back then I kind of thought, yeah, you know, I wanted to make my mark in the world or something go off and do some big, grand, dramatic, you know, quixotic adventure yeah. and kind of, um, you know, see what I was capable of. And I thought it'd be all exciting and, you know, romantic and. Then very quickly, once it got going, I realized that much of this four-year you know, slog was going to be just day in, day out schlepping along roads on bicycles and sleeping in sort of woodlands on the fringes of, um, you know, <laughs> villages. And I was essentially a kind of glorified itinerant hobo for, for years without kind of <laughs> friends or family. It's a very unusual thing to do with your life. Um,
1: yeah, I know. It's usually sort of when you hit 21, everyone's like, right, so what's next after university I suppose it takes always takes people by surprise when you say oh i'm gonna go and do this yeah how did your family sort of take it
2: they were pretty understanding i mean by the time i decided to do that i'd you know i've been getting slightly more intrepid each summer going off and doing something uh, i've got three siblings which probably made it a bit easier on my parents
1: where are you the youngest oldest i'm the
2: third so maybe it's classic middle child uh, wanting to stand out but no they were they were they were, i think they seemed to get it you know they knew that i wanted to i wanted to be a writer and that i wasn't just going off on you know on a on a lark i was i was wanting to travel and see and learn and experience things and then to kind of relate those things via written word later and you know with a blog along the way and yeah i think they kind of bought into it with some trepidation
1: Yeah, I think they they always do. With these big trips, you have your ups, you also have your downs. Yeah. After the four and a half years?
2: Probably about six months in, I found myself cycling up onto the Tibetan plateau, but it was mid-January. And so, I mean, when I left Kashgar in China, in Xinjiang province, to start cycling kind of south across the western tip of the Taklamakan and then up into the mountains, uh, it was minus 33, Xinjiang. I didn't have anything... So any specialist gear really. I had a, a sort of a half decent sleeve mag, a sort of you know winter sleeve mag that I picked up in Kathmandu, but not you know, up to that standard. And I had a big coat that was kind of too big. It was a cheap fake, um, you know, um, rip off North Face job, um, which was sort of. I mean, I was always going to be warm during the day. Yeah. Um, but when you're cycling, you actually kind of generate heat. It was the night that was a problem and and just for hands and feet during the day. So I was just wearing a bunch of pairs of socks and Wellington boots. Um, I don't know why <laughs> Wellington boots, they're not at all, you know, insulating as my feet got, you know, really, really cold and my hands with not good quality gloves. I mean, I got fris- frostbitten in the end.
1: Badly or just?
2: quite. Well, I mean, I haven't lost any of my fingers. You know, I had these blisters that sort of, oh, wow. you know, came up and Beautiful. I had to lance them, you know, every day for probably about three weeks until I got off the plateau. Uh, And they were just absolute agony. You know, like the fingers were, the tips of the fingers were dead, but, you know, I I haven't haven't had to cut anything off. They are more uh, sensitive to cold temperatures now. And I get sort of pins and needles more often. But um, there was one particular sort of blizzard that I got sort of lost in. And And this road I'm following is, I believe it's now paved, but this is nine years ago. And it was... Really, really not. Yeah, it was. It was. It, it, it was. And I think probably still is one of the most remote and least travelled roads in the world. Uh, the western sort of gateway to Tibet. On a good day, there'd be a vehicle going one way or the other, but often there were two or three days with no vehicles at all. And I wasn't allowed to be up there either. Like I cut a hole in a Chinese military base fence and snuck in to get into Tibet because I, I didn't have permits to travel there. You can't travel independently there on a bicycle. Um, so I was having to hide the whole time and I you know, I couldn't get enough food. So my in the month, six weeks that I was up there, uh, my body weight dropped by 25%, which is <laughs> quite a lot. Oh, um, and so I was really not in a good way. And then I got this one particular blizzard. I mean, there were a bunch, but this one was the worst. I got caught out in it and the wind picked up really, really quickly until it was too strong, too fast to even consider trying to put up my tent. And this tent was a one man, basic tent that was sort of
1: jobby that you just hide
2: away. And- yeah, it was not, you know, it was not a four-season tent. It was no. perhaps a two-season tent. Um, it wasn't sturdy. It wasn't like a geodesic dome or a bubble or a tunnel or any of this stuff. It was a really, it was a lightweight. Sort of, it weighed less than a kilogram. It's the sort of thing that people use lightweight. if they're like walking the Appalachian Trail in summer. So I, I couldn't get that out and the sky was white and the land was white and I'd lost, you know, visibility went way down I couldn't see, you know, 10 meters ahead 20 meters ahead perhaps um I lost the road or the track um and before I knew it, I was just stumbling through shin deep snow kind of lost pushing my bicycle and um, the res- sort of the sensation was just receding from my fingertips and my feet felt like a pair of ice blocks kind of slotted into the tops of my wellies I-, I felt like I was walking on the sort of stumps of my ankles and um I genuinely thought I was going to die for the first time in my life, you know I didn't have a phone i if I did, it wouldn't have worked I was who knows where the nearest person was and um, and I started to cry, <laughs> <laughs> then my tears started freezing and then my eyelashes start getting like frozen shut uh, so i was, it was i mean it was really ridiculous. I was like lost and blinded in this whiteout and at the same time physically blinded as my eyes were <laughs> gluing themselves shut with with the sort of the tears that I was you know bl- loving probably ten minutes after a while out in this situation I was probably about 10 minutes from digging a hole in the snow and kind of burying myself in my sleeping bag and hoping for the best but I kind of miraculously stumbled upon this hut essentially it was this gray shape in the haze and walked up and it was a hut that a Tibetan family lived in in the middle of nowhere half the size of this room um and they took me in for the night and sort of looked after me and tried to help me with my fingers and yeah but just the you know the sort of the three hours or so before I got indoors there um for the last hour and a half of which i was pretty convinced i was going to die and be found you know come spring sort of a bleached pile of bone somewhere up on the plateau or several springs hence you know because it's not a busy place uh was yeah that was the probably the lowest lowest point
1: god and that family took you in
2: yeah yeah, yeah i mean it's the remoter parts of the world there's no question everyone just helps each other you don't yeah. you know you don't turn a stranger away when they're I think they thought I was the abominable snowman when I because I just walked in, um, and you know they probably hadn't seen some like white dude before. It's not an area that people pass through, and you know I had snow in my beard and like two icicles of snot hanging from my moustache, and I was too cold to talk, and I was shaking wildly, and I was wild-eyed, and I was you know foot taller than them, and uh, yeah, I, the kids were terrified. They, <laughs> as soon as I walked in, they fled to the far corner of the room, uh, and I bet they wish they could have got further away.
1: Sometimes in the most remote places, people are just unbelievably kind and would always welcome you in. I think in Tajikistan, a couple of years ago, we were in, we went up this mountain, thinking that we were getting away from all civilization to go and camp, and we came to this remote village, and then suddenly it was like a tiny village. It had its own mayor, it had its own sort of hierarchy. And they're like, yeah, 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 come and stay, come and stay. I mean, language barrier was. Iffy. Did you ever find that, the language barrier on your trip?
2: Yeah, I mean that was often a often a problem. I did my best to pick up as much as I could of each new language as I sort of drifted through regions. Because I wasn't washing a great deal during this journey and because my hands were in front of me on the bicycle all day, I sort of developed this system of writing the numbers one to ten on the knuckles of my fingers, one, two, three, four, five on the thumb, six on the other thumb, and then up to ten on the other hand as well as words you know on the left hand left and right on the right hand and hot cold up down yes no please thank you i had this sort of system for where each thing would go my hands would be in front of me so within a day i'd learn them and then when i got to the next country i'd just do the same with the you know with a new language so i you know picked up things like that fairly quickly and yeah you know, in central asia for instance I, I sort of got you know country places where i was regions where i was able to use one language for longer meant i picked up more of them You know, so i got I got somewhere with Russian and French in Central and West Africa was useful and uh, sort of Farsi. I was in Iran in total for four months and, yeah, and Afghanistan for another month. So that, that certainly helped. Uh, but no, I'm not a natural linguist and China was an interesting time. <laughs> How do you think it sort of changed you? You'd,
1: got, you'd left the UK, four and a half years later, you returned. I didn't know the sort of monotony of day to day life would have been difficult.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to give a sort of an exact answer to that, I suppose, because when I left, I was 22. When I came back, I was 27. And I'm sure we all change enormously in that sort of, you know, mid-20s period. Um, but I certainly, by the time I came back, I was much more um, sold on the idea of doing these things, you know, for, if possible, for a living. I suppose emboldened, having, I'd both learnt my sort of, Limits as well as my capabilities, and I had so many times during that four-year journey, I had come close to real disaster. You know, the the sort of the near brushes were fairly countless. But at the same time, I developed a better sense of how to avoid things like that, and I I think my sort of survival instincts were much much sharper than they had been before. So I felt, I suppose, I was left with the self-confidence to be able to try much more sort of ambitious things. So, the, I mean, the next journey that I did was the next sort of big journey uh, started with a three-month ski through a really remote area of Arctic, Russia, uh, sort of Siberia in, in winter um, with even colder temperatures than in Tibet during that previous winter, you know, going a month at a time without seeing a person or a building apart from the expedition partner I took with me. And so, yeah, the, the that's the main thing that changed. I felt able to sort of, take things on and, and part of that confidence probably stems from the realization that that sort of kindness and helpfulness is the global default pretty much wherever I went in the world people's initial instinct was to help me or to look after me as opposed to take advantage of me or rob me or whatever else so I, I, I overwhelmingly had it's incredibly rare. positive experiences with people yeah Exactly.
1: I know a lot of people listening, you know, who may be thinking of going on these big, big adventures, and I I imagine a lot of them are always terrified to go alone because you're sort of one fifth of the five closest people you surround, and if those people aren't sort of into these big trips, and you deep down are, and you're sort of craving this adventure, this sort of excitement in your life. I know a lot of people are always put off by being alone, speaking from experience, you know, it is always the 99% who are good. It's always the rare other ones you hear about. Uh, I mean, I absolutely. And would you, you say that's the same
2: in your trips? It's much less than that. Even, yeah, I um, that. and going, you know, traveling with someone is. Is, is fantastic you know you have a, you have a friend a companion a confidant you have someone to share the bad times as well as the good obviously but uh going by oneself is is a lot more formative not just do you get approached more are more approachable by people wherever you happen to be traveling to just being by yourself you appear vulnerable and that brings out the the you know the kindness the good nature in, in people broadly speaking but also you just you have all that time in your head and you can't default to you know comfortable you know familiar company you're forced to put yourself out there to try and sort of integrate more into wherever you are you pick up more language um, and yet like you said there's there's so few people who are trying to do any harm I mean they're out there, and over the years, I've been you know spat at and stoned and beaten and and you know had guns pointed at me and knives held to my throat. And these things can happen, yeah, yeah. but those are you know like a couple a couple of dozen encounters out of tens of thousands. Um, so they are absolutely not the uh, the rule; they're the exception that yeah. proves the rule.
1: And out of all the sort of countries, did you have a particular favourite? You sort of seem to spend a lot of time around sort of Mongolia.
2: Yeah, Mongolia I, I love it's it's so ripe for adventure, bigger than Spain, France and Germany combined. But they have just over three million people, roughly half of whom live in the capital. And the country just has no fences, it's boundless. So you you're boundaryless. So you can just go through desert and forest and steppe and mountain and you know, just this huge wilderness and you can just roam wherever you want. So that's fantastic. I also love Iran. I've spent um, a fair amount of time in Iran and it's, besides being genuinely the friendliest place I've ever been to, uh, it's, it's, I mean, you've been, Yeah. uh, yeah, it's exhausting and overwhelming and wonderful how often and how tirelessly people will throw their, their kindness upon you. You know, it's, you can cross Iran and not spend a night in a tent, not by design, just that's what happens. People are always trying to take you in and look after you. So it was just incredible. Uh, and and the history of the country is really interesting. And as well as the modern, you know, history, it's, it's a very, very, uh, ancient, fascinating and yet troubled place. So I've, I really, really enjoyed, um, time in Iran.
1: I always remember in sort of central Asia, they always sort of just say, Oh, come in, come in, come and have a cup of tea, come and do this thing. We were on Mount Ararat in Turkey and. We went up, and suddenly this family, these sort of shepherds, were like, "Come on in, come on in," and gave us food, some eggs. I mean, we were not expecting it at all, and we were just like, "Why? Why?" Because it's very difficult, especially I think in the UK. But I, I think it does happen.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens here as well. It's, yeah. it's just broadly speaking, in the UK. We live our lives slightly more sort of gated. Yeah, yeah, we're a bit more sectioned off and partitioned from one another. But if you, you know, if you're wandering through. The Highlands, for example, and you pass someone's cottage and you stop to ask for water, or they see you out the window. There's a good chance they'll ask what you're up to, or, or you know, give you a bit of food, or, or, or want to spend the evening drinking whiskey with you. You know, it, it it's, um, it is human nature. It's uh, people often say that we're we're too egocentric and sort of cynical in in the West, whatever that might be. And I really don't think it's the case. I think it's just the the the. If you look out the window now in Acton in West London, and see someone cycling past with panniers. You don't know if they've come from China and are on their way to Mexico, yeah. or if they just carry a lot on their commute. It's quite hard to tell. Um, so there's not the same sort of sense of cycling past a yurt in you know in a in a mountain valley.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you also did this world first triathlon across the perceived border of Asia. And Europe. What was the sort of mindset and what sort of inspired you to do this particular trip?
2: The impetus for that trip was the spurious idea of a continental divide between Europe and Asia. Because it, it doesn't take a genius to look at a map and realise that Europe and Asia are one continent. And it doesn't it, it's not a problem to have different regions of a landmass given different names. You know, you can refer to the Indian subcontinent. But there's this, there's this particular gravity that is given to the respective ideas of Europe and Asia by Europeans, really, frankly. Uh, And this goes back two and a half thousand years, like all the way back to the ancient Greeks who thought that Asians were barbarians. And their, their idea of the border between Europe and Asia is the, the birth of what is today geographically considered the border between Europe and Asia but it it's completely um you know man made it wouldn't or shouldn't be problematic if it wasn't used as a lazy trope often by people with an agenda yeah. you know you'll hear someone who is trying to denigrate the concept of asian people on you know the news or on question time or something and they will refer lazily to asian people and what they mean by that normally is some you know they they're using that lazy sort of um wide ranging term and really what they mean is you know problematic fundamentalist extremist groups or something like that
1: referring to one person as an entire exactly it, it, it's,
2: it's lazy and it can be used um, accidentally or maliciously uh incorrectly mm-hmm. or, or misleadingly yeah um i mean asia encompasses you know the Chukotka peninsula in far east russia and palestine and japan and sri lanka and Laos and Georgia and 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 Afghanistan and Tajikistan and just all these incredibly diverse places that have no single you know through line no thread apart from the fact that European people consider them Asian or some European people do and i always thought that was a a, a sort of a problem so the, the 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 trip came fundamentally from that but my idea was to travel the length of this perceived divide uh which is about 5000 miles Ask people living along that border what they thought of the border, if anything, or even if they were aware of it, you know, that if you cross this river, you're crossing from Europe to Asia, or if you cross this mountain watershed, you're doing the same. Um, and my, my hope, my goal was to, you know, finish this journey, which took eight months, and by the end, be in a good position to put forward a, a sort of fairly convincing case um, in a longer form than we have time to go into here for doing away with that idea and just talking about Eurasia as as one yeah. big um concept and you know along the border most people either thought of it as a sort of a novelty or a joke or weren't aware of it but it was also a fascinating journey along the way you know the the remote sort of wastelands of and former gulag towns of of arctic russia and the the sort of tiny villages lost on the you know swelteringly hot steppe in kazakhstan um, it was a really diverse bunch of places this journey took us through. Yeah, it was great. Uh, skiing, kayaking, cycling. That was the three legs of the triathlon.
1: And you did it alone again?
2: No, I did it with a an American um, sort of ski mountaineer, uh, Cali Morgino, who I met in Tajikistan when I was on that previous bicycle journey. She was also cycling across Asia, the other direction. So the two of us just about didn't kill each other for the, for the <laughs> eight, eight months of... Um, yeah. One-on-one. And so the sort of
1: mindset, did you try, like, I suppose a lot of people have this idea that you just go and do it. Is that how it works or do you train for it?
2: Uh, I'm not a big one for training or preparation really. I, I mean, for that journey, I, I don't ski. I'm not someone who knows how to ski, but ski touring is really, it's ski trekking. It's just walking on skis. You know, yeah. I, I, I have all the skills it requires to walk to the South Pole on skis, but then again, so does anyone who can walk, which I appreciate isn't everyone. But then, all sorts of people with different, um, you know, uh, disabilities have got themselves to the South Pole, for example. But um, this journey was quite straightforward: ski, walk on skis, and then kayak, paddling is very straightforward. You can't really go wrong, and then and then cycling. And I've been riding a bike since I was. Three or something, um so yeah, there's no there's no real prep i'm actually not i'm not great at sort of elaborating on mindset it 's not something i've spent a huge amount of time sort of considering. I suppose i've always been of the persuasion that you throw yourself in something and figure it out as you go yeah. and but that is perhaps my mindset. I am someone who's willing to take risks and to adapt quickly along the way, but i don't really have brain techniques or visualization you know brain training things like that i I'm Uh, maybe too uh, impatient for for such things.
1: Well, I suppose the sort of mindset is more on like when times get hard. It sounds from your expeditions, you've done them, you've completed them, and probably from someone just sort of hearing about it, you make it sound quite easy, apart from your few sort of hairy moments. Has there been a time in the last sort of 10 years while doing this where you've decided to do an expedition, you've planned it, and it's sort of just... Failed in its concept.
2: Sort of, yeah. Well, the, well I could perhaps mention two things. The, the first week of that ski up in Arctic Russia, yeah. um, we set off and we hadn't yet got to our start line because the coast where we wanted to start before skiing south up into the Ural Mountains, the coast was 120 miles from the nearest town, which we took a train to. But there are no roads in or out of that town. This is the end of the line, 45 hours on a train from Moscow. So we got to that town, and the only way to get to the coast was to ski. So we hadn't even got to our start line, and after about four days, I had such intensely bad blisters on my feet that I could basically not walk, and we had to turn back, and I sort of limped for, you know, three days or so back into a blizzard, finally got back to that town, and and it was a week before I could walk properly again, at which point we set off again. And I'd sort of altered my boots and made them fit better. And it was then going to be all right. And we managed to eventually get a lift from someone in a tank to get to the coast, which was quicker. So that was, you know, sort of a, a false start and a failure there. And then the lesson was, you know, obviously get your boots fitting and try these things out. And, and you know, that served me right. And there are certain things that you should, you know, you are, you should do <laughs> to prepare. But the other was um, last year in Papua New Guinea, I, w- I went with the goal to climb the three highest mountains in the country. And the highest two are climbed semi-regularly as kind of a trail to the top. And they're not very high. They're, you know, they're sort of 4,300, 4,500 metres. The third highest was this sort of basically unknown mountain. It didn't really even have a name. And it had been climbed once before, I managed to find out, by a team of uh, Swedes, I think, what, Swedes and Danes, uh, who had climbed it over a three-week period with a huge party of sort of guides and porters, this kind of assault-style, you know, take on the mountain from the north side. And I turned up on the south side just with a backpack and some boots and sort of found some guys in the village and said, should we go? And they said, yeah, yeah, great. And after three or four days of walking, I was so beat up by the jungle, so covered in leech bites, so worn out, so washed out by the, the monsoon and just cut and scratched everywhere and My palms were covered in, you know, every time I slipped, which I was doing all the time, every few minutes, I'd reach out and grab something and it was inevitably covered in thorns. So I was, I was just completely ragged. And we got sort of as far as we could go before we'd have to start literally cutting a trail through the jungle. You know, the footpaths ran out, at which point, with hindsight, thankfully, the, the, the kind of couple of guys who I took with me said, right, well, any higher than here, I'd say we were probably at two days from the top, any higher than here, and the spirits don't like us going there, so let's go back. <laughs> and by that point, I was thinking, well, I'm not just going to cut my way and get lost, and yeah. you know, and they would have cutting by myself. It would have taken me ages, yeah. uh, and I just wasn't up to it. So that was that was one sort of decided failure, you know. And I came. That was the, that was the f- I, I I'd flown for 48 hours to get to PNG. I spent one night in a in a um, sort of guest house on arrival. And then went straight to this village and started climbing this mountain. I was, you know, I was pale. I'd broken my foot about six weeks, seven weeks earlier, and oh, no, ten weeks earlier, perhaps. But I was, I was not in good shape at yeah. all. And I was happy with hindsight to sort of write that off as a lesson. And the other two mountains I got up much easier. And then when it came to a bit later in that journey, much more intense, dense, remote jungle, I was much better prepared than uh, than I would have been without that sort of. Yeah, I think um, learning through failure is always quite important.
1: So this is the part of uh, the show where we ask every guest the same five questions. Quickfire. Quickfire questions on your trips. What's the most like bizarre thing that you like crave or miss while you're on these expeditions around the world?
2: I can't think of anything bizarre, but chairs. Chairs. Yeah, when when you're out in the wild, you spend so long sitting on your ass on the floor you know, eating with your head next to your feet, you know, and I, I've, <laughs> maybe it's a sign of age. I just, I just long for a stool or a chair. And it sounds insane because, you know, you're out in these wonderful places and, you know, yeah. no, no one's going to bring a chair. Um, but I, I, I've, particularly with the bicycle, for years I was just sitting in a tent all hunched over, eating my dinner each night and my breakfast each morning. Uh, and and I love the concept of a chair and a table. It's incredibly vanilla. It's not very bizarre. Uh, but, you know, it, on any of these given trips, if, if I could have some sort of magic weightless item that was inexhaustible, I wouldn't take good red wine or chocolate or cheese or, or, or whatever. I'd take a chair.
1: What's your favorite adventure book that you've read?
2: travel writer called Redmond O'Hanlon. Um, he's a sort of Oxford don and an ornithologist, and he is the total antithesis of what we think of as the kind of the, you know, um, Victorian... Bearded explorer, adventurer type. Um, he is this kind of bumbling, grey mutton-chopped, you know, academic from the dreaming spires of Oxford, who knows all about birds and is totally inept and out of shape and physically unable. But his books are the funniest things I've read. Well, at the same time, being fascinating, impressive journeys. Uh, in particular, Congo Journey. Uh, it's not. <laughs> it's not a great title in my opinion, but the book is fantastic. He goes in the. 90s to what is now the Republic of Congo, but back then was the Marxist-Leninist People's Republic of Congo. And he goes with some mad Congolese um, uh, zoologist in search of a a cryptosaur, essentially like a Congo's Loch Ness monster at some remote lake, lake deep, deep in the jungle. And he just loses his mind throughout that journey, slowly kind of goes mad. And it's so funny, so intrepid. Uh, and I, I love that he's not the archetypal, you know, explorer. I think it's great.
1: Your sort of inspirational figure growing up?
2: I read it, I, I suppose, because I was he's the first um, explorer I was introduced to or came across. It was Ronald Fiennes. He came to talk at my school when I was about eight. And I just remember this kind of mad man with no fingers talking about walking around some big, cold, icy place and thinking he was you know insane and funny uh and and impressive and so i suppose that's kind of my earliest memory of someone doing these sorts of things
1: yeah i think ran finds would probably be a, a big one growing up what's your favorite quote adventure
2: quote uh benedict allen um once wrote uh if you go with a map all you'll come back with is a more detailed version of that same map which in essence means, you know, just don't bring your ideas to impose on a place. If you go with as open a mind as possible, you will come back with so much more rather than going with your preconceived idea of some place and trying to sort of mold it into what you already know. Um, and I think that's, that's great. Also, I've often just not had a map by, <laughs> by lack of preparation. And that's been quite good.
1: First trip, everyone thought I was mad because I just basically woke up each morning. And was like, right. West is that way. Yeah, that looks like a road.
2: Wake up each morning and yeah. not want to cycle into the sun, so just go west.
1: <laughs> People listening are always keen to travel, explore the world. And what would be your advice to them to get started?
2: I suppose start small. I mean unless you you have unless you feel bold enough to just take on some massive journey, some big challenge, you don't need to do that. Start small. And that might just be, you know, turning up to some weird and wonderful place and going for a long walk or or, or for, you know, it depends on everyone's kind of um, scope of experience, but, you know, it could just be going for a short hike and a camp, you know, around where you live, just doing something new, really. Yeah. Um, I don't think people need to get to... I think a lot of people read adventure books and travel books and get disheartened thinking, well, I can never go and do, you know, whatever these people are doing. And that might or might not be true, but it's also irrelevant. You know, yeah. there, there, there are... tiny proportion of people who do these sort of big long journeys and they might or might not be in their right mind while they're doing them but um that all the same sort of things all the same benefits that you can get from those journeys are also to be had just from doing shorter things
1: yeah i mean your trip or your triathlon you're not a triathlete are you
2: no and i mean so As rewarding as going off on some long journey. I mean, this summer I've been to the Peak Districts a couple of times for a week, just in a tent camping and climbing, uh, rock climbing. And that's, to me, that's, you know, I I get as much out of that as I do going for a six month bike ride. Uh, It's just doing what you can when you can.
1: And um, where can people find you?
2: My uh, Instagram is probably where I most often post things. That's at CW Explore. Uh, My website, CW.com. And I've written a couple of books, uh, Through Sand and Snow and On Roads The Echo, which people can find on my website or Amazon, Kindle, Audible. And that's your trip cycling the world? Yes, those two books together make up that uh, four-year bicycle ride.
1: Amazing. Well... Thank you so much for coming on. As I'm sure everyone's wondering, what's next?
2: I am hoping to get back to Papua New Guinea uh, once the COVID situation allows um, and to get sort of further and deeper into the, into the remoter areas of jungle, probably in the west of the highlands. Uh, so yeah, watch this space and thanks very much for having me on. No worries. Absolute pleasure. Cheers.
1: Join us next time on the Modern Adventurer podcast
2: that's promotion, pay rise, whatever it be. I'm, I'm, I'm very much the same. I need that, um, that motivation in order to push myself forward.
1: Thank you for listening. You can watch the videos on YouTube now and please tell your friends about the podcast, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes as it makes a huge difference to the show. Thank you and have a great day.